Well, can I add my welcome to Sarah's? Thank you so much for tuning in. I realise that there's many things you could do on a Sunday morning, so thank you so much for being with us. We really appreciate it, and we're so pleased that technology means that we can connect with you. Um, uh, I'm just going to give you a couple of moments um, before I start properly. Uh, you might need another cup of tea. You might uh, have kids. You need to give something to do. Um, you might just need a loo break. Um, any of those, now's the time to do that. And um, it's great to be with uh, you. We're doing this series at the moment called Mad World. Um, partly, I think that the relevance of that to current affairs should be clear as the world goes mad. But also, uh, we are looking at the book of the Bible, the book of Daniel, which is about some people who navigated a crazy world still trusting in God. So we think we've got lots to learn from that. And it was great to have Daniel 6 read to us. Well, hopefully you're all settled in. And you may or may not be aware that it is Black History Month. Um, I'm learning more about Black History Month this year than usual because uh, we are doing learning at home, uh, like I guess lots of you are. And our kids have been learning about Rosa Parks. She was a hero of the civil rights movement in the USA. You may remember, you may have heard of her, because she re refused to move seats on the bus. She sat in an area that was not supposed to be for black people, and she refused to move. She said, I'm not moving. Now, it would be easy for us to think of Rosa Parks as just a woman who sat in a seat and felt tired and didn't want to move and said, the rule I've got to remove is ridiculous. But that wasn't the case at all. Rosa Parks had spent a lifetime raising money to defend people who were in court for defying racist laws. She'd campaigned for equality her whole life. It was hardwired into her. So when the moment came to take a stand, she just continued to do what she'd always done. Now, in lots of ways, choosing that path was a death. Rosa Parks had to die to her own comfort, her reputation. It's easy for us to look after the event and see her as a hero, but it was day by day choosing what was hard. She bore on herself this experience, the weight of the sinful, evil, racist system that was around her, and she didn't give in to it. She stood up to it, but that was a death for her. But that death that she had led to new life. Her continual commitment to what was right, bearing the weight of being against wrong rulers, her suffering, well, hers and the suffering of many other people in the end led to the lifting of the evil system uh, for everyone else. Although I do want to say clearly it's not totally lifted, not totally solved. I don't want to be heard to say that at all. Now, that is actually true of all heroes. We're used to thinking of heroes of people like Superman. You know, they're exceptional people who are mysteriously able to do amazing things, better than I can, just without blinking. But in fact, if you look at history, change comes through normal people who just bake in a pattern of doing what's right who learn day by day to bear the cost 
of doing right in a world that is being ruled badly. And it's people choosing that pattern day by day that brings life to others. And of course, Rosa Parks is famous, but she would be the first, I'm sure, to say the struggle against racism was a thousand, a million little acts from people we've never heard of who bore the cost so others could have life. Progress happens because hardwired into the way the world works is that little people choosing to bear the cost of others' sin is what makes a difference. And that's because I think that is put into the world because that is the character of the God who made us. See, the God who made us became a person, Jesus Christ. And that person expressed God's everlasting character, which is to love and to serve and to put others before himself. That was Jesus's life's direction. Jesus attracted all the weight, judgment, wrath of evil rulers who thought they were in charge of everything. They put that on himself, on him, and he literally died. All the weight of an evil system went on Jesus. Through that death, he brought resurrection. That faithful obedience, dying, birthed a whole new humanity. And that's a benefit that I get today by trusting in him, and you can get too, just by asking Jesus. Now, maybe you're watching today and you just bought a load of total nonsense. The thing I'd say is you can't deny it is this way that change happens in the world as people day by day bear the cost of others' wrongs. And all I'm saying is, I think the reason for that is that God has hardwired that into this broken world and it gives us hope. But if you're a Christian, we love Jesus for that. Our heart goes out in praise to Rosa Parks because our heart is already committed in love to Jesus who's like that who lives out obedience and death and then resurrection and then blessing to others. And that's also the Daniel pattern in this book we're looking at. Baked into him is this sense that only God is ultimately in charge and the rest of his life unfolds from there. And that life where God is in charge means bearing the weight, feeling the wrath of worldly rulers but experiencing that wrath means that life and hope is brought to Babylon where he lived, the darkest of places. And we're looking at this book of the Bible, as I said, because we feel like at this moment our world has gone mad. But Daniel is the picture in the Bible of somebody who lived out knowing that God is in charge while the world went crazy around him. And he is a hero in the truest sense, the Rosa Parks sense. He takes the weight of the madness of the world on himself and so brings light, blessing, goodness to others. And that's what we're going to see today. So let's jump straight in. And the first thing we see in this passage is a vendetta. Well, by this stage, Daniel must have been quite an age. He's onto his third king. If you've been in the story with us, you'll remember there was Nezer, who was humble before God and realised he wasn't really in charge and sort of gave glory to God. Then there was Shazer, who didn't, and he got judged, punished by God that very night. And so third king is Darius, kingdom of the Medes. 
If you're of a certain age, the name Darius will remind you of Will and Gareth Gates, but that may mean nothing to you. Now, Darius is not quite as bonkers as the rulers who came before him, as we'll see. But still, it's not an easy, good kingdom to live in. But Daniel, he does the same thing as he did with previous kings before him. He worked hard, he lived with integrity, and he rose up the ranks as an extremely trusted advisor, the most trusted advisor over all the others. Now, the other 120 high officials and satraps, great word, satrap, we should bring that word back, they hate that. And so they begin to realise, Daniel has a weak spot here. Daniel has an Achilles heel. They can get Daniel. Not because of the quality of his work, which is excellent, no, but through his obedience to the law of his God. The place where he can be brought down is not because of weakness in his character. No, it's because of his faithfulness to God. And that makes him vulnerable. Uh, as a minister of a church, uh, Christian organisations send me a lot of post. And I appreciate getting it. Much of it is very well-meaning. But a lot of post-Christian magazines you get through the post, they seem to operate to this idea. They say, if we live out our faith, people will think we're brilliant and love us, and so they will want to become Christians too. And that sounds pretty good to me. I mean, that would make me sign up for their organisation, to be frank. I can get a good reputation and be loved, and I can lead people to God. Win-win. But if I buy into that view of the world, I'm going to feel very shocked and affronted when my faith, sticking to the law of my God, is not praised and appreciated, but is used against me. And the Christian magazine view of the world, it's not the Daniel experience, and it's not the Jesus experience, and it's not the experience the New Testament Christians were told to expect. The real experience of being a Christian, according to Daniel and to Jesus and the New Testament letters, is that you behave in ways constantly that bring blessing to other people, like Daniel. So if you're in a workplace and you're someone who trusts Jesus, you'll want to be honest. God's Spirit does that in you. If you're forgiven by God, you tend to be forgiving and gracious. If you're loved and included by God, you tend to want to not be the grumpy one in the workplace because, you know, God's joyful and brings joy to you. And you get on with doing that without being paranoid or bitter or angry or jockeying for position. Uh, but the truth is that even though that brings blessing, that in a world where people are pushing to find their own power, doing the right thing, being this person with integrity, will mean you become a lightning rod for other people's dislike. How will they bring you down though? Because you have integrity and joy and you try and do what's right. Well, they bring you down by pointing to the law of your God. Maybe you're a great worker, a very successful school leader. And then someone discovers 
that you attend a church which teaches what the Bible has always taught, what historically Christians have always taught about sexuality and marriage, people will use that, try and bring you down. They'll get you into trouble with the law of your God. There was a period a few years ago, we seem to be through it now, maybe it will come back, where university Christian unions found this. They were doing the best job of anyone, as far as I could tell, of welcoming new people to university, helping them settle into their rooms, helping them make friends. But then it was discovered what some of them thought about sexuality. I mean, it wasn't even that they did a talk about that. It was just discovered what some of them thought. And everybody then in the student union seemed to want to try and bring them down, even though what they did was good for the university, definitely compared to what was going on in some of the other societies. And the New Testament says you should expect that type of unjust, unjust suffering. It says, listen, make sure people can't bring you down because you're lazy or a gossip or a meddler. But expect people to use the gospel against you. You're not getting something wrong if that happens to you. Now, why is the world that way? Daniel 6 tells us it is that way. But why is it that way? Well, that's beyond the scope of this passage, really. But just to say, the New Testament warns us that really when we are taking a stand to live with integrity and to point to Jesus through that, there's a spiritual battle going on. Christians living out and speaking their faith, that is a threat to powers that hate God and don't want people to believe in him. And that power at work in the world means that people irrationally hate Christians who do the right thing and want to bring them down. So Christians who live with trust in Jesus, they're good for the world. They should be good for workplaces. They should be good for schools and universities and hospitals to have Christians working there. But they don't do that expecting to be praised and honoured. They also expect that that will provoke irrational dislike. Just to be clear, not because they're annoying, but because of the law of their God. And we've lived in an entitlement culture for a long time where we begin to think, hey, though, I'm doing what's right in my workplace and no one recognises how great I am there. I deserve promotion and praise and glory for being such a loyal employee. And instead, Daniel 6 calls us to humbly and clearly and with integrity, Daniel-like, Jesus-like, bring blessing to other people and expect and accept that the law of your God may get you into trouble. That's the first thing we see, a vendetta. Here's the second thing we see, a quiet obedience. Daniel hears that uh, a law has been passed that means he's not allowed to worship his God anymore. And I love the phrase in verse 10, where it says, Daniel heard about the law, he went up to his window and prayed, just as he had done before. So the people have managed to get the king to sign a law that would get him into trouble. Daniel heard about the law and prayed, just as he had done before. And of course, he was found out. You may remember, if you've been with us, that way back ages ago, we looked at Daniel as a young man in chapter 1, 
And for some reason, we don't really know, he just decided he wasn't going to eat the king's food. Well, here we have something very similar, way years on at the end of his life. Praying every day at his window is not required by God's law. Same thing like the food. Daniel wasn't required by God's law to not eat it. But Daniel said, I am not going to be pushed out of my patterns of distinctiveness, of being different by this godless regime. I'm just not going to do it. He makes no noise about the law, no complaint, but neither does he say, oh, I don't really have to pray. It's not really in God's law. I don't really need to do it. He continues in this pattern of quiet obedience, knowing it will get him into trouble. Now, I like chapter one. I think what this is saying to us is where your line should be drawn, being distinctive, is conscience-led. Now, just to be clear, like chapter one, obeying God, you know, doing what he actually says, that's not up for debate. You're not to lie, you're not to cheat, you're not to commit adultery, you're not to gossip or slander or ignore and be horrible to your colleagues. All of those are ruled out by God's law. You have to do that. That's all taken for granted. But you will know in life there are grey areas, practices which we have as Christians or you've developed to help your Christian life, which you don't have to do, but they are part of how you relate to God. And Daniel 6 says you need to work out with the help of the Holy Spirit and the help of the church whether that thing is something you can compromise on wisely or whether you really shouldn't because you're allowing yourself to be shaped by godless rules. One guide in Daniel 6 as to whether you're getting that right in this grey area is this. You should be very wary if you've been pressured out of doing something that has always been part of your Christian life up till now. So say you've always been someone who serves in children's work in a church family and that's the way you've served God. There's no law in the Bible that says you have to do that. But you should be nervous, I think. You should think twice about giving in to, say, the pressure of work or getting another qualification that would stop you doing that thing that you've always done. Or it's normal Christian practice to meet midweek in a group, but there's no law in the Bible that says you have to do that. I can't judge you for not being part of a midweek group. But I would say you just need to think about it if you stop doing that because of work pressure or because of social pressure. Just watch out. Question your conscience. It bears some reflection, this. Is there some aspect of your Christian life that has always been part of your practice and you have thought should be part of your practice, but you have squeezed out of it not because it wasn't helpful, but because of social pressure or work pressure? Well, you should begin thinking twice about that. I often have conversations with people about their lives. It's a great part of my work. And sometimes I'm in the position of having to say, I'm not sure this change you're making is helping you reflect God in the world and be a blessing to other people in the place where you are. You know, you're not attending church as much or you're dating this person who isn't a Christian or you've become very obsessed with this hobby. I'm not sure it's helping you reflect Jesus. Often what people say back is, well, the Bible, where does the Bible say I can't do that? And of course, it doesn't. 
in all of those cases. But Daniel's story says we should be very slow to give up things we know are helping us if it's because of social or work pressure or what other people think or pleasing others. If there's something that's always helped your relationship with God, you should be worried if you allow yourself to be pressured to give it up. More interesting to me here about Daniel is this. I don't know whether you're aware of the Christian Twitter sphere. If you're not, you don't need to be, frankly. But Daniel is causing a lot of discussion amongst Christians in social media at the moment. People are asking, is this law that Darius passed the same as the laws we're currently under requiring a limit to Christian worship? Did we do the wrong thing as Christians by just allowing that to be interrupted the way Daniel didn't allow it? It's an interesting debate to some people. I think though it's sidestepping the real way that Daniel challenges us. I mean, if you look at Daniel, he hadn't been to the temple for years, probably 70 years. He's had to be away from home, stuck in Babylon. Corporate worship, he just couldn't do. But he was persistent and unrelenting in his own spiritual life, no matter what the pressure was to stop. Now, several people have said to me, if you think I'm talking about you in this moment, uh, I'm not talking about you personally. I'm talking about lots of people in church life, including my own reflections over this time have been like, without going to church, I struggle to read the Bible and pray by myself. And in a sense, that's right. Church is a means of grace. Without it, the Christian life is much harder. That's as it should be, really. But the glorious truth of the gospel is this. The church doesn't mediate, bring God's presence to you. God is with you by his spirit wherever you are, at home right now. There's nothing you using this time to be like Daniel and immerse yourself in personal prayer. There's nothing stopping you doing that. There's certainly no law against it. There's no work. In fact, this might be a good time to get into a pattern to pray that you keep without fail, perhaps with your family. This is a good moment to do it. Perhaps as many of us are working from home. You're not going to be thrown off that by what's going on at the moment. There's no law against that. You know, Daniel is not going to be thrown off his personal spiritual life with the threat of being eaten alive by lions. I've been thrown off my personal spiritual life by not having church services or not being able to sing corporately. Now, if that's the same as you, seek God, seek help from the church who would love to help you. Wire personal dependence to God into your life at this time. No one's stopping that. Now, in fact, we don't even need civil disobedience in this discussion that we're having on Twitter because we can meet. I know there are people who can't, by the way, in church family because of health concerns. But what I'm getting at the moment a bit from people is, well, yeah, I know we can meet, but it's not very comfortable. You have to put up with children being in the service. It's cold. There's no coffee. You have to get there earlier. Well, I think if those things are putting us off, we're quite far away, aren't we, from Daniel-like faith. We're far away from long, quiet, faithful obedience over many years. 
if just inconvenience or temperature or the lack of coffee would put you off gathering with other Christians, you'd probably be put off, wouldn't you, by the threat of being eaten alive by lions. And if that's where you are, now is a great moment to sort out your walk with God. So, just to be clear, if you are unable to come to church because of health reasons, please don't feel pressure to come. And if you're feeling like you might have coronavirus symptoms, please, please do not go anywhere near CFS. But if you just allowed yourself to become spiritually flabby and lazy, well, now is the time to sort that out. Daniel keeps going, even though he's threatened with death. His hard work, because he knows God, means he's promoted. In the end, it's because of his faith in God that the wheels come off. And I've been pondering, why does God set the world up this way? I prefer the Christian magazine version. That everyone loves me for being a Christian and wants to become a Christian because they love me so much. Why does following God have to lead to rejection and pain and mess first? Well, I guess it depends which God you're trying to point to. If you're trying to point to a God who's just bigger and better and shinier than everyone, he would just have attractive people who succeed as everything at everything pointing to him. But the God we know humbled himself to become a person. He lowered himself as low as he could possibly go and suffered unjustly merely because of his faithful, generous, compassionate obedience. And as people embedded in Babylon, in a world that hates God, my aim is to point to that God, not the fake shiny version. And so the only way to do that is to embed faithful obedience and accept that that means carrying the weight of the messed up world and persist in doing what is right. And that will point people to Jesus as we know him. It's a hard ask to walk that path, but there's two reasons in Daniel 6, why we should. Here's the next thing we see, a ruler. Look who's ranged against Daniel in this situation. All the high officials and satraps, at least 120 of them. And then we keep being told this law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be changed. It's a strange thing. Nezer in the last few chapters was just an absolute dictator. Darius seems to operate in an actual legal system where there's a limit on what he can do. So the issue here isn't some mad king who's against God. In fact, Darius is just flattered into making a bad law, but the law of the Medes and the Persians, this legal system cannot be changed. Now remember the Medes and the Persians, they run the known world at the time. That's like the law of the Romans later, or the law of the British Empire later than that. And here is Daniel, one single solitary person taking it on. Everyone with power. And every system of rules is against what he believes. The law cannot be changed, except, of course, by God. God totally changes the law that if you don't worship Darius, you've got to be eaten by lions. Now, because we know the end of the story, we sometimes don't translate this to where we are. You may be somewhere that you're faithfully, quietly, but insistently being faithful to God. Here's what people will say to you. Maybe even misguided Christian people, they will say, oh, it's just you, you're very strange, weird, God squad person. Stop being awkward. 
everyone else who is clever and has power and influence doesn't believe what you believe. In fact, this whole powerful system that you're seeking to be distinctive in, it's much stronger than you and you will not change it. You know, the education system or the NHS or the Saudi Arabian government, it's huge and it's filled with important people. Maybe if you're trying to faithfully get on with the job, you may even get powerful people like Darius saying secretly, you know, well, I agree with you, but the system, it can't be changed. And many Christians cave when faced with that. But notice by the end of the story, verses 26 to 28, Darius has totally changed his tune. He is singing a little song at the end of the passage saying, there's only one king who actually rules over everyone and it's not me. And it's not the officials, and it's not the United Nations, and it's not the British government. The only one whose rule is complete and will never end, who should command total obedience, is God, the living God who always intervenes in this world for his people. And Daniel knew that. It does not matter who is ranged against you, Daniel says. If you know in your conscience what it means to obey God, then you obey God, no matter who else is lined up against you. There is only one everlasting kingdom. And so you obey that even if all this range of power is between you and that, trying to force you to do something else. And I said this a few weeks ago, I've been reading some stories of war criminals recently, people who did terrible things, unimaginably bad things, and why did they do them? Because they assumed this powerful kingdom they lived in looked so impressive that their laws were unchangeable and it would last forever. But of course they didn't, those kingdoms. How could they have avoided doing bad things? Well, if they had known that there is actually only one king who rules over everyone and he is the one who is to be obeyed no matter what anybody underneath him says. And there is a risk that Christians are gently cooperating with evil because all the important people do that round here. And I need to carefully think, what does it mean to live only under the rule of the everlasting God in my situation? Fourth thing we see, or second reason to walk this path of obedience, a resurrection. I guess many of us first met this story in Sunday school. We made cotton wool lions and painted them yellow. But of course, it's a terrifying story that's totally inappropriate for children because the lions are real and in the end, the officials and their families are thrown straight in and torn limb from limb by these hungry lions. So really what Daniel experiences is a resurrection. He climbs out of a grave alive. And of course, that is just a picture of a much better and more real resurrection still to come. When Jesus, who actually died as he took the weight of all that evil on himself, he emerged from the grave. And as he emerges, thousands, millions of powerful people in history have come to the same conclusion as Darius. Jesus being alive makes us see there's only one God and he's not me. It's interesting, isn't it? Even our Queen here in the UK basically goes on TV every Christmas to tell people that. The risen Jesus showing the world that God is the real King 
does mean, though, like in Daniel, that there is a judgment for anyone who continues to try and ignore him, to work the world to their advantage and hates God's people. The officials and the families are destroyed. And that is a warning to you if you're watching in that position today, but an encouragement from Darius because he just changes his mind and acknowledges God. It's easy to come and trust in God and give your life to him. You could do that today. Because of stories like this, Christians have faced real death that comes from being unjustly treated because they believe there's a resurrection to come. That feels very easy for me to say, as that's not me in that position now. But it's true to say that that belief that when we die we will be resurrected with Jesus has empowered Christians to give their actual lives away to bless others who hate them. The only result being unjust hatred because they believe that this story in Daniel is a picture which is made real in Jesus, is a future hope for Christians that beyond death there's a resurrection. I'm going to think more about that actually in a minute. But even though I'm un not under threat of death, the New Testament does use the language of dying to yourself. It says the real God and the hope that he will raise us to be with Jesus means we're ready to die to particular things now. Let's put it this way. If God is not going to raise you to be with Jesus forever, just abandon what matters and live for your reputation. Or if God is not going to raise you to be with Jesus forever, just abandon helping other Christians because you're scared of catching the coronavirus. Or if God is not going to raise you, don't bother with the long obedience of communing with God every day. Marry whoever you want. Live somewhere nice that you choose. Just be squeezed by your own comfort in the world around you. But what if he will raise you? Well then, die now to reputation and keep only obeying him. Die now to safety and love people even if it's risky to you. Die now to self-indulgence, to feeling good, to sleeping in instead of getting up to pray. If he will raise you later, then die now to your ambitions for a nice life and choose to serve him. We're back where we started really, at unsung heroes who died to themselves to bring life to the world, who bore the cost now in order to point to Jesus because they believed they'd be resurrected in the end. If you're watching today, have a think about, uh, and you're a Christian, have a think about how you became a Christian. I would say, and guess, it was through the endless small sacrifices of others who died to themselves, who gave up their time to run that youth group, who died to their reputation to ask you to that thing, who gave up time they could have been making money in order to spend with you and your family. If God's going to raise us with Jesus, small, regular, but revolutionary faithfulness like Daniel, will bring light to the world now. So choose, choose to live under the rule of the eternal God. Die to yourself. Bring life to the world. 
Let's pray. Let's just take a few moments of quiet to reflect on what we've heard, think about something that might have applied particularly to you. For he is the living God, and he endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. We thank you, Lord, that you're alive, that your kingdom is the only one that will last forever. And we pray that knowing that will empower us in whatever way now we need to stand distinctively. And I just pray for a work and a move of the Holy Spirit in all of us watching who know Jesus, that you would put your finger on, that you would highlight to us the place where we need to not be pushed out of what we know is right. Where we need to continue living this life of long, faithful obedience. And Lord, how we pray, we offer our lives to you and pray that through living that way, life will come to others in the sure and certain hope of our resurrection with Jesus. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.